The Woj Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Season two of the ESPN Investigates podcast is now available. The Running Man tells the story of an obscure former Olympian and alleged serial sexual predator and how a 14-month ESPN investigation brought him out of the shadows. More than 50 men were physically abused and mentally manipulated by their coach for over 40 years until they banded together decades later to find justice. Subscribe and listen now to ESPN Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. My guest today, ESPN NBA reporter Tim McMahon. We talk about Daryl Morey's move to the Philadelphia 76ers, the Rockets hiring the Steven Silas and uh, the future of James Harden with the Rockets and the Utah Jazz sold from the Miller family after 35 years to a tech billionaire who's a native of Salt Lake, a fan of the Jazz, Ryan Smith, and the start of next season and what that looks like, what's at stake for the NBA, all of that and more with the great Tim McMahon. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome into Tim McMahon, ESPN's NBA reporter out there in the Western Conference. Tim, how are you, man? I am doing all right, Woj. How about you? You had a busy day. Yeah, busy day. A lot of news. Uh, a lot of news around teams that you spend uh, a great deal of your expertise on, starting with Daryl Morey going to the Sixers as their new president. Uh, Steven Silas will be the new head coach with the Rockets. And Ryan Smith is on tap to be the new owner of the Utah Jazz. He'll he's buying the team for one point six six billion dollars from the Miller family, who have owned the Jazz for over thirty years, thirty five years now. Uh, once that's approved by the Board of Governors, but l- let's start with Daryl Morey going to the Sixers. Tim, uh, it was <laughs> Daryl was just talking about wanting to take a gap year with his college-age kids, they were going to be off. He was going to be off. He was going to spend a year with them, and then he would maybe look to get back in. But that gap year turned into like a uh, two weeks? Yeah, I got a gap, got a gap a week or two. And mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe Daryl was around those kids long enough, and maybe it's like my relationship with my daughters are like, uh, okay, we've had enough of you. Can you go back to work? Can you go do something? Yeah, and so he goes to Philly. Uh, he and Doc Rivers now, uh, who uh, – was recently hired as head coach who Daryl was part of trying to convince to come to the Rockets right after he left the Clippers. But uh, I I do know Doc Rivers is a a big fan of Daryl Morris. He's looking forward to working with him with the Sixers. I think he was very much behind that hiring. They have history together in Boston, going back to Daryl's pre-Rocket days uh, in the Celtics front office. And so they've known each other there. And obviously uh, Austin Rivers, Doc's son, played with the Rockets the last couple of years, um, but pretty remarkable transformation for the Sixers. And now the, you know, for a fan base that really always did love Sam Hinkie, uh, who still 
um, in a lot of ways long for the, I don't know if they long for the process, but they long for Hinky to be able to see it through. Uh, listen, his he is a disciple of Daryl Morey, and now Daryl comes in to Philly. I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a really interesting partnership. Well, it's going to be a really interesting partnership um, also because that roster is kind of the, at this point, it's almost like the anti-Mori roster. Um, if if James Harden is the perfect player for Daryl Morey's kind of analytical vision of NBA basketball, <laughs> what is Ben Simmons? <laughs> they're, they're pretty different. They're both left-handed, I guess, although we're not quite sure about Simmons. Um, but I, it'll be very interesting. And look, that was the, obviously the huge question was how were they going to kind of build that roster around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, or you know was there going to be a decision made to go one direction or another? Um, so you know th- that just those questions I think uh, intensify with Daryl Morey coming in, um, and it, it's not that uh, I think that he thinks that he you know he has just one way to play, obviously. You know, if if the Rockets had Joel Embiid, I don't think they would have played small ball last season. You know, they're mm-hmm. not going to get rid of the best player. But uh, Daryl Morey has absolutely been a guy who relies a lot on math, math being three-point shooting, and, and the Sixers are are obviously ill-equipped to uh, to be a team that, that jacks up 40, 45, 53s like the Rockets have done over the last four years. No, th- that's right. And, and I think if you look at, you know, the – the Rockets team that he built around James Harden were built to try to win around James Harden and mm-hmm. to try to play to his strengths and uh, the hiring of Mike D'Antoni and the, the style he brought and then going all the way in on small ball here. Uh, you know, I think people sometimes forget no one really came closer uh, in the West of beating that Warriors team than the Rockets did. They got to the conference finals a couple times. They had them in a game seven, and if Chris Paul doesn't get hurt, Maybe the history is different, but but they didn't get past them. But uh, they were very successful. We're in the playoffs virtually every year. Daryl was there um, among the winningest teams in the league over the last uh, eight years or so. And, and so, uh, yeah, we'll see how he puts his stamp on that Sixers team. This ownership group in Philadelphia, they have been big game hunting for a high-profile established president for years. And Elton Brand came in and did the job and did a lot of good things there and was in a position where at times there's a lot of voices in Philadelphia. Uh, there's there's multiple owners who have input. Um, there is uh, a, a front office that had a lot of input around Elton. And, and I think he tried to navigate all that the best he could having come uh, up pretty quickly out of his playing career, worked in the front office and made the adjustment really fast, I think, to doing the job, really working hard at it. And now I think it remains to be seen. I think the initial plan or the initial thought is that Elton may stay. Uh, he is welcome to stay. It's a question of, does it make sense for him? Obviously, Daryl, you know, when Daryl's running the team, he's running the team. And so that's a different uh, I, I think that's a conversation still for Elton Brand. I know he's well regarded by Doc and and Daryl coming in and ownership, and so we'll see how that uh, plays out. I do think Elton Brand will be, if it's not in Philly, I do think if he decides to stay in this, um, he will be a GM and run a team somewhere else and, and do it for a long time. Uh, but but this ownership group wanted a big name. They had chased a bunch of them. 
And and ironically, Daryl kind of used them as leverage a couple of years ago right? Um, for the new deal in Philly. And then we all know in the last year there, it started to, you know, I think his time there, it became clear for a bunch of reasons, was probably uh, in the short term. I think you certainly sense that being around there every day, Tim, that, that Daryl was not long for that job really all of last year, really since after the, the tweet about China, the trade for Westbrook for Chris Paul. I think there's a number of factors. You know, it was it was an arranged marriage. Obviously, you know, Fertitta bought the team and, and Maury was still there. And then uh, Fertitta was essentially pushed into, forced into, uh, given Daryl that huge extension. And, and there was a couple reasons for that. One, as part of the purchase of the team, there was a clause that uh, Daryl and, and the CEO there, Tad Brown, could get out of their contracts after that first season. That was a kind of a, a parting gift from Leslie Alexander to two executives who were very loyal to him. And then, you know, Daryl got the interest from the 76ers, so he had a lot of leverage. And then it just, you know, that that relationship, um, they really, I think, uh, tried to present a united front really up until the end. I mean, they did these exit interviews with individual reporters at Daryl Morey's insistence, and that's when Morey stressed the gap year and wanted to spend time with the family and all that. But, um, and I don't even know how much they butted heads Certainly, Daryl insists that they didn't. He insists that Fertitta, uh, you know, empowered him to do his job. But it's kind of a running joke around the league how, you know, the the Rockets, you know, Daryl always had full power to use that mid-level exception and never, you know, never used the full thing over <laughs> these last few years. Or, mm-hmm. hey, he, you know, the for, you know Tillman was always willing to pay that luxury tax, but the Rockets always managed to duck uh, right under it and. You know, obviously the the Westbrook trade was a huge shift, and and you know I got in a little bit of trouble when I went on with Zach Lowe with some folks in Houston when I went on his podcast, and basically what I said was this was a trade that James Harden obviously wanted, Tillman Fertitta wanted, and Daryl got done. Um, I, I you know I I got a call. Um, I'll just I'll just say I got a call from Daryl. Uh, late that night, saying, "Hey, th- that was a group decision. I just want to make it clear." Um, but it, you know, I think that it was something where Daryl felt like it was probably a flip of the coin. Um, but you know, that's a trade that, to this point, uh, certainly hasn't worked out. Maybe it's a completely different story if Russ doesn't get coronavirus, which I believe did impact uh, the injury that he got in the playoffs. You know, if, if Russ is the guy who's averaging thirty-two, eight and eight for the two and a half months before the season was halted, if he's that same guy in the bubble, this might be a totally different story, but that's not the way it went down. And so, you know, it's a trade that mortgaged the future of the Rockets. They owe two first-round picks and two first-round swaps, you know, and then they went even more all-in with a Covington deal where they give up Capella and another first-round pick. And so, you know, Daryl's leaving a situation in Houston where you've got maybe a two-year window and then a whole lot of uncertainty. Um, to go into a situation in Philadelphia where, let's be honest, there's also a lot of uncertainty, but it feels like there's a, a, a bigger window. Uh, Tim, how much do you think this season, the start of this season, or maybe the entirety of the season, has an impact, if at all, on James Harden's future with the Rockets? Well, it, so you know what I can say is right now the Rockets are 100% committed to trying to cash in on James Harden's prime. Um, they still consider him, you know, they consider him the best player in the league, which 
you know, he's without question a, a perennial MVP candidate. I mean, that's just a simple fact. And and they're going to try to win a championship as long as he's at that level and as long as he's on board. Um, I think at this point, it's probably a year to year deal. And if, you know, if I'm speculating, I'm going to say that that decision is more than likely made by James Harden instead of made by the Rockets. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, it could get to a point. And I, I, I do not believe this is imminent. Um, but again, I think it's a year to year situation where at some point, James Harden, who, hey, he's, he's tried repeatedly to pair with a, with a superstar to give him a chance to win a championship first with Dwight and with Chris Paul now with Russ, you know, if, if James Harden wants to pair with another superstar, he's probably going to have to be the one to pack his bags. And so is that next uh, off season? Is that the off season after that? You know, we'll see. And obviously a lot of that also depends on uh, w- what happens with the Rockets over these next one or two uh, years. Yeah. So, so they're, they're finalizing, a deal with Steven Silas, an assistant mm-hmm. coach in Dallas, who's been uh, son of Paul Silas, one of the legendary, uh, a legendary NBA figure, is both a a player and championship player and, and a coach. He was LeBron's first coach in Cleveland and uh, coached in um, Charlotte. And he was uh, like New Orleans and Charlotte. He moved with a team, right, Tim? Yep. I believe Paul Silas. Yeah. yeah. And then – Steven Silas, as an assistant, going back to Charlotte again with Steve Clifford, when Steve Clifford was ill a couple of years ago, Steven Silas was the interim coach for an extended period of time and and uh, well-respected uh, around the league, a uh, very even person, a very uh, a lot like Mike D'Antoni in that way, um, very uh, even-keeled, not a real emotional, although Mike could get to be, but um, a very placid guy, but I think um, – uh, uh, there's a toughness about him that certainly comes from his his father, a really smart guy, Ivy League grad, went to Brown. And I know in Houston they liked his vision offensively of what it might look like now in a post-D'Antoni era. And so uh, he'll come in and the team talked at length. The organization talked at length with Jeff Van Gundy. That was a conversation that extended really over a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. They talked a lot. And in the end – uh, the idea of bringing Jeff back, and Jeff has been intrigued with uh, returning um, to coaching. He's had opportunities through the years. I do think it was special for him to consider it in Houston, which is not which is his home. He's been in Houston um, all the way back to his days as the Rockets uh, coach, and and so that didn't work out. That that conversation just did not lead to I think Jeff and feeling like there was a fit there that just fit for him. And they were concurrently concurrently talking with Steven Silas. And, and so he gets the opportunity. And now it, it's a daunting first job. It's daunting to walk in with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And um, I, I think this is a challenge. Um, this is a real challenge for Silas. And I think this is a real uh, Rafael Stone, their new general manager in Houston, his first hire. And the first hire of of this ownership group as a head coach. They they obviously Mike D'Antoni was there and 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 won a lot with him for a couple of years. But um, there's a lot invested now with Steven Silas for this new group to to figure out a way to keep going forward and and try to keep this Rockets team a, a contender. Yeah, and I think Steven Silas out of their candidates pool was the best combination of kind of modern basketball X's and O's intelligence and savvy blended with a a, a personality that would 
that would mesh with the superstars that they have. And, and I think the challenge for Silas, like you said, he's, he is a, I would describe him as, as mild mannered. He's not, Mm -hmm. you know, and his dad was obviously a guy who had a really commanding presence and was a a big, you know, you could say, certainly if you played against him, he was intimidating. Whereas, you know, Steven's not that, that type of, uh, of guy. Um, so I think the question is, you know, what kind of authority, will he have in a locker room that has some very strong veteran personalities, obviously Harden and Westbrook, PJ Tucker, uh, Eric Gordon, Covington on down the list. And, you know, one thing is Silas is smart enough to understand that that that's not his locker room. It's going to be James Harden's locker room. It's going to be Russell Westbrook's locker room. So, you know, it's made, it's not necessarily his job to be the authority figure. It's his job to get the most uh, out of that roster. And, and, you know, you do that by empowering, uh, the leaders to be leaders. Um, but then he is a he is a great offensive mind. He was a great offensive mind. That's the reason Rick Carlisle hired him to his staff in Dallas. I think certainly his experience working with Rick uh, helped him. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be some things that Rick did in Dallas that uh, that he's going to take down there to Houston with him. But he's a guy who players really like. I don't think it's a coincidence that soon after you reported the news, Woj, that there was a tweet from Luka Doncic mm-hmm. uh, congratulating him. And I, I think he's definitely somebody who will get along with the players on that roster, which if we're being honest, you know, I don't know if that would have been the case uh, with Jeff Van Gundy. Now, it absolutely would have been the case with John Lucas, who those players in Houston love, and that's the reason that Lucas was in the conversation. But the hope for the Rockets now is that they'll be able to keep John Lucas on the staff um, he was a director of player development under Mike D'Antoni. He could probably land in a, in a more prominent role. And they're trying to build a, a, a really veteran, experienced staff to support Steven Silas. And, you know, they've talked to Nate McMillan. They've talked to uh, Jeff Hornacek. You know, they're, they're really looking at to have some experience and some head coaching experience uh, to support a guy whose only head coaching experience was that time filling in for Steve Clifford when he was ill. Tim, what is it like to coach the Rockets? What is it like to practice like Harden, Westbrook, like that team? Do you have to, as a head coach, work around how much they're going to practice, how much you can do with them, um, you know, especially with a new coach coming in now um, who'd like to come in and, you know, it's going to be a very tight training camp and window, it appears. Uh what are the challenges? Are, are there are there unique challenges to coaching the Rockets in that respect? Well, I think there's going to be unique challenges with any superstars. I mean, is there are there unique challenges to coaching Kawhi Leonard and Paul George with the Clippers? Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps you know some of those challenges are why Doc Rivers is now with the Sixers. Um, you know, I I only know the Rockets from an up close perspective during the D'Antoni years. Uh, during the D'Antoni years, they did away with shoot arounds. You know, their practices were essentially uh, shoot-arounds. You know, they, they didn't go hard in practice. Um, but I, I will say that James Harden had to be talked into that. You know, I think it's something that Chris Paul actually originally pushed for uh, with doing away with the shoot-arounds, and, and Harden had to be talked into that. Matter of fact, Harden still goes to the gym every game day morning and puts him, you know, John Lucas and some other coaches put him through a really extensive about 45-minute to an hour uh, you know, individual shooting session. And he's a guy who, um, you know, his, his post-practice shooting sessions are similarly, uh, you know, extensive. 
His, uh, you know, he, he he's a guy who doesn't miss games unless he absolutely has to, mm-hmm. and they have to kind of talk him out of the gym. You know, sometimes maybe he has to be talked out of the out of the club as well, but he has to be talked out of the gym. So I, you know, I don't think the challenge will be if he wants to amp up the practice intensity. I don't think Harden would be the challenge there. You know, Westbrook is a guy who, for several years in Oklahoma City, he basically got to make the schedule. Um, and you know, I, I don't think at this point in his career, he is a guy who who necessarily wants to be going through a grind uh, practice-wise. But look, Silas is going to, uh, let's be honest, he needs to figure out what they want and work mm-hmm. around that. That's just, that, And that's when you have guys who are a dozen plus years into their career when they've been MVPs, perennial all-stars, that's just the way it is. I want to hit on this, Tim. Ryan Smith is going to be the new owner of the Jazz. He and his wife, Ashley, they're from Salt Lake. They're from Utah. Uh, he grew up a Jazz fan, um, worked in software, started a company, made a gazillion dollars, sold it, and then spent $1.66 billion, I'm told, to buy the Jazz, buy the arena, uh, buy the AAA baseball team mm-hmm. there and and the whole sports group that the Miller family had. But, you know, the you, People think of the Miller family owning the Jazz, and you go back. Larry Miller was kind of the original Mark Cuban in that uh, he was the guy you saw courtside, and he was chest bumping Carl Malone and John Stockton. He was a very prominent owner uh, with the Jazz, and you know, over the last, I guess it was, I think I had in the story since eighty nine ninety, the second winningest organization in all of the NBA, behind the Spurs, and Larry Miller died. Um, a number of years ago, and Gail Miller kept that team and her and her sons. And it's been a model of consistency. They haven't won a championship, but it's really the only thing. Right. They haven't done nine division titles in their run and I think 16 50 win seasons in 35 years. That's that's remarkable in, in, in a place that's not a free agent destination where they've always drafted well and made smart deals. And now uh, 35 years into it, they're selling the team. It'll get approved by the Board of Governors. And and Ryan Smith comes in and takes over a very stable situation. You have a very good roster. Uh, your two best players, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, are both up for extensions this summer. Uh, this or that summer. What I don't even know when we are. This right. fall. <laughs> Next right. week, the week after, November. Yeah, yeah. Whenever that's possible. Whenever that is. And uh, uh, Quinn Snyder recently signed a new deal. And uh, Dennis Lindsay moved up to president, Justin Zanix, the GM. And so they're very well positioned to continue to be chasing 50 win seasons in Utah. But but I think in a lot of ways in the history of the Utah Jazz, that the Miller family saved the team there. It was the mid-80s. There was some thought that they might have to – there were some financial problems. They might sell to a group. Somebody They could have sold – previous owners could have sold to a group and and maybe moved them out of there. And that family stabilized the organization and then, uh, you know, made it among the league's elite. It's really um, not an ownership group. Probably people talk a lot about, but but I think they let they hired great people. They let them do their jobs. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, they're a pretty good model for, for how to run a team. No question. And look, the Miller family, you know, that is Utah. I mean, you can't you can't turn a corner in Utah without you know being 
reminded of the the Miller family, and I, and obviously the Jazz are uh, the the number one reason of that. And Ryan Smith was the, he's the right guy for the Miller family to pass the torch to because he's Utah as well. There's no way the Miller family sells this franchise to somebody who maybe had eyes on Las Vegas or Seattle or, or fill in the blank, whatever city uh, you, you, you want to bring up. Um, there was no way that the Miller family was going to have any question about the jazz's stability in terms of staying in Salt Lake city. And, you know, again, this is a, this is a guy who grew up in Utah has, you know, has been a jazz fan from the time he knew how to tie his shoes um, and so if I'm, a, if I'm a, you know, if I'm in Utah as a jazz fan, I'm really excited about this because, uh, in, in some way, in a lot of ways, uh, it's a continuation of the stability there. There's no question about whether you're going to lose your team, but I also think, you know, this is a 40 year old self-made billionaire, passionate fan who, you know, I would expect him to kind of come in there, uh, you know, excited, you know, new, fresh blood, um, and you know, I, th- I think a lot of the questions, uh, about the Miller family. and look, when you're in a small market, there's going to be times you need to tighten the belt. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, this, with this new self-made billionaire, uh, coming in there with, with a fan's perspective, if, uh, if that didn't kind of reinvigorate things from a, uh, you know, from the perspective of really, uh, going all in on, on Jason success on the court. Yeah, and I think this is listen. This is a difficult. In some ways, it's a difficult time to own a team. There's no revenue coming in. Zach Lowe and I had a story today about um, the projections that the revenue from last season. The league it was down ten percent. Mm. They lost, um, you know, like eight hundred million in marketing and sponsorships. They lost four, or excuse me, eight hundred million in gate receipts. Another four hundred million in marketing and sponsorships, and then two hundred million from China. Um, that they think probably turns around this year because they're back on television there. Uh, but they've still got to work out a deal with the players to get the season started by December 22nd, which is what the league would like. They want to be done by July, mid-July before the Olympics to allow players to go play in the Olympics, to not have to go up against the Olympics in television, and to not push the NBA playoffs deep into the summer because – this past year showed you, like maybe there's not an appetite for that. Um, and yeah, they want to uh, get they want to get back on track from a from a mm-hmm. calendar standpoint because, <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 late summer and certainly early fall are not the time for uh, the NBA playoffs. And look, th- there's a lot of reasons to be concerned uh, if you're an NBA owner about the finances, uh, at least for the next year going forward. Simply because who knows when or if they're going to be able to have fans uh, this season. But still, you've got a team, uh, you know, kind of the epitome of a small market team selling for $1.6 billion. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to play. I'm not going to. I don't know how to play a violin, but if I did, I wouldn't do it for NBA owners. Well, I think I think what it shows is the NBA is still a good long-term play to buy a team. Uh, that team may be worth a lot more than that. And, and I think also that the Jazz weren't out on the open market. This was a conversation Ryan Smith was a corporate partner. He had the patch. They they did a you know essentially a cancer charity patch on the Jazz uniform the last few years that raised over twenty five million dollars. So there was a relationship there. Uh, I don't know how hard they ground them on the price. Maybe they could have gone outside and there's somebody who might have paid more. Maybe he would have paid more if 
if he had to compete on the open market. But that's not what Gail Miller was looking for. She right. did a deal uh, with with somebody she felt comfortable with. She wasn't looking to sell a team. Uh, he came to her. I, maybe, maybe it was on her mind, and and he made it easy to do. But I think around the league right now, uh, this is a time. Uh, you know, the, the players' association is still talking through it on their side about the idea of a pre-Christmas start. I know there are some players, especially players who went deep in the playoffs in the bubble, uh, the Lakers, some others who, you know, their off season is just going to be shorter than everybody else's who would prefer it. They don't start till mid-January. Mid-January is difficult financially for the league, I think, to remember. This is a 50-50 split, and whatever the revenues are, the players' contracts and their pay when when the TV you know, back several years ago when the new TV deal came in and the league got flooded with money, well, the, the salary spiked. And now, like, it goes the other direction when there's not revenue. And so I do think in the end that probably the league's going to get what they want here and get this thing started earlier. Uh, we're going to go from the draft on November 18th right into free agency, right into training camps, and uh, ideally at December 21, 22 start and you're going to see a very different I think one thing that's going to be interesting this year and we talked about it in the story a little bit Tim and I'm curious your thoughts on it because there may not be fans or certainly not going to be fans initially right. they want to eventually get to it but the idea of having to balance the schedule out and have let's say every star in the league hit every market you want to make sure Luka Doncic gets mm-hmm. to New York you want to make sure Steph Curry gets to Atlanta whomever it is LeBron Blake you want them to play everywhere. That that's going to be less important if there's no fans, and you're going to see a schedule that reflects that more intra-conference within your own conference, and more some just sort of geographic games where you go into a marketplace and play all of the, those opponents at once. Versus, you know, you're not going to make two trips to New York or two trips to LA. And I think, uh, and that's why the league is talking also about doing the schedules in halves. Give you half the schedule initially. And then sort of see where it looks at the midpoint of the season. You may have lost games because of the virus. You may have had outbreaks where teams games get postponed, or you look at um, adjustments you might make in the schedule. So this is all going to look, I think, well, it is going to look very different. Yeah, and obviously this is a unique year. Uh, kind of that baseball style scheduling that you're talking about. It, that it, it's going to be interesting to me to see. If that's something that, you know, maybe not as extreme as it will be this year, but if that's something that they implement going forward, because, you know, not only does that obviously help kind of minimize as much as possible the risk of uh, the, you know, the coronavirus risk, but, you know, as, as Dennis Lindsay and and several other executives have mentioned, uh, you know, since the restart, what they realized or what they, you know, got hard evidence of inside the bubble was just how much uh, reducing travel or obviously in the bubble eliminating travel benefited players from a health and performance standpoint. So, you know, I, I think that's something that the league is going to have to consider uh, going forward. And, you know, how much would it would it hurt attendance if, you know, for example, uh, you know, it, and I'm, I'm, for example, if the, if the Mavericks went down to San Antonio and played boat, you know, played a Friday, Sunday in San Antonio. Does that, does that hurt attendance there as opposed to splitting those two games up? 
And, you know, and at some point is how much would probably, uh, if anything, a minor financial impact be worth it when maybe you make, you're going to make some of that money back reducing travel anyways. And it just, if you're benefiting your product and more importantly, you know, you, you could very well be extending careers by reducing the, just the travel wear and tear on these players' bodies. It, it's going to be, Tim, a, a wild season in a lot of ways, um, having to operate outside of the bubble. That's initially the plan and um, trying to navigate that and figure out a way to, you know, keep stars on the court and, you know, do it in 72 games. And they, again, they still have work to do with the Players Association uh, to get this going. But I, 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 there is, a, there is a, a real significant concern, and rightly so, within the league about if you just if you just don't have fans for a very long time you know people's habits change and their what they do with their free time what they do with their extra money we are in a a significant economic downturn obviously who knows when we get out of it it's certainly running concurrently with a virus that this country just uh, has not shown an ability a government that hasn't shown an ability to get serious about trying to contain. And so I think the economy is going to run parallel to that, to those issues. And for the, like every other business, I think for the NBA, um, this is going to be a, a really trying year. Uh, economically, small market teams worried about no revenue sharing from the big markets. The big markets worried about no fans, no luxury suites. Uh, you know, certainly some of the big market owners who who might have just who are just written in some cases just have more wealth and have, have banked more money owning these teams in many cases um you know like it, it's going to be um it's just going to be a trying year for everybody well and all those things get back to why that christmas or just pre-christmas start is so important and why you know really i mean with, with these players at some point the money's not just going to talk but it's going to scream and just the the importance of having that Christmas showcase from a, you know, just from a financial standpoint, um, the, the importance of getting the schedule uh, back on track when you see how, how rough the ratings are, you know, deep into the summer or, or into fall, you know, there, I mean, before the, before the bubble, there was some talk of, Hey, you know, this, maybe the NBA calendar shifts on a regular basis. And I think now that they've seen, uh, you know, they, they've seen how that goes, you know, you don't hear a lot more of that discussion. So, well, you know, these are, these are things that, and, uh, you know, at some point it's a business. And I think that the players are probably going to have to, uh, come around and it's, it's not necessarily ideal. It's certainly not ideal, but uh, I just, you know, the, the other options I think are, are less appealing. Absolutely. And, and I think financially, the, listen, the players are going to take a big hit on this year. Again, it's a 50-50 split. The revenue without fans, that is an automatic 40% off the top of game night receipts and all the other things that go with it. And, and then there's ancillary losses financially. And so uh, players' contracts, um, they're not going to pay what they thought they signed for. Um, that's not what they're going to get this year. The league hopes that it'll be an aberration, that they'll be able to be back to full strength in 21, 22, but I don't know. We all thought the pandemic might be over by now too. So what do, what do we know? Um, Tim, awesome to catch up, man. Um, we will talk soon and, uh, there's a lot more coming here quickly in the league. Uh, appreciate you taking time out as always, man. Appreciate you having me, Woj.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPN's NBA reporter, Tim McMahon. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod. Wherever you get your podcast. be sure to also listen to the Hoop Collective with Brian Winterst. And, of course, the Low Post with Zach Lowe. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.